Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and investors who are working in the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting molecular causes of aging. I'm Bob Hughes, VP of Biochemistry at BioAge. Joining us today is Dr. Rochelle Buffenstein, one of the world's leading authorities on the naked mole rat, a fascinating animal that has emerged as an important model for research in longevity science. She's currently a senior principal investigator at Calico Life Sciences, a subsidiary of Alphabet that is seeking to better understand the biology that controls aging and lifespan. Dr. Buffenstein, Welcome, and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much for this opportunity to be here. I suspect that many of our listeners, this may be the first time they've heard about the naked mole rat. So why don't we start off with some basic introduction to this organism? What is the naked mole rat and what is special about it? The naked mole rat is a mouse-sized rodent that stands out as an especially powerful model of successful aging primarily because it is known to live an incredibly long time. It seems to be exceptionally resistant to most age-associated diseases like cancer and cardiovascular disease and even reproductive senescence. Unlike humans and mice, mole rats are able to show prolonged resistance to all age-related changes in physiological function are able to maintain body composition and metabolism throughout their long lives. And we believe that given this phenotype, that these animals are a very good example that aging does not need to be inevitable and that they hold the blueprint for how to live long and successfully healthy lives. Well, certainly a lot of features that make it attractive for longevity research We'll get into some details as the conversation continues, but I'm sort of curious as to how did you get into studying these animals and, you know, what were your original intentions and how did that sort of morph into thinking about longevity with regards to this particular creature? As a university student, I had the good fortune of being the research assistant to Jenny Jarvis, who was a professor who'd come from Kenya with a colony of naked mole rats. And she couldn't get these animals to breed and was at a conference when Dick Alexander, an insect eusocial specialist, was talking about a hypothetical naked mole rat. And one thing led to another. And that same year, my first year in college, I landed up going to Kenya to collect animals with Jenny Jarvis to see if they were eusocial. Once we had the animals back at the University of Cape Town, we realized that very little was known about their physiology. And I, being more interested in endocrine physiology, eventually started projects looking at vitamin D metabolism and reproduction later, and eventually moved to the States with my animals, realizing they were now very long-lived. And so... I got my first grant looking at how it is they are able to live 17 years. Little did I know then that these animals would be exceeding 39 years of age in my care. My understanding has been that it was originally thought to be an interesting system for understanding its unusual social behavior. So this 
observation that they lived a surprisingly long time was serendipitous, as you say. So that obviously led the way to some very different sort of investigations beyond social behavior into uh, what we now call geroscience or the study of longevity. What is unusual about the aging process of these animals in sort of a broad sense? We'll get into some more detail, but you know, in a broad sense, what do you think is unusual about their aging process? I think just about every aspect of their aging process is that of a non-aging animal. To me, that really stands out in terms of basic biology of aging. For example, they defy Gompertsian laws of mortality. At ages 27 times the age of sexual maturity, you still don't see an increased risk of dying or mortal hazard like you do in humans once they reach the age of 45, about three times the age of sexual maturity. So throughout their life, death seems to be stochastic and not age-dependent. I think that's a very critical component of my interest in their unusual aging phenotype. The very fact that we don't see cardiac aging in these animals is also something that I find striking. What is the mechanism that protects their hearts from being able to maintain function with no change in any variable from frequency of heartbeats, atrial fibrillation being the pathology, to the size of the heart, hypertrophy being the pathology, and the fact that these animals don't seem to show any age-related change in cardiac function to me is remarkable. If we could understand the mechanism behind that, we might be able to come up with ways to improve human heart function and human health. Obviously, heart disease and cardiovascular disease in general are a major cause of morbidity and mortality in the human population. So you're suggesting that perhaps the naked mole rat has pathways in play that are protective or reduce their susceptibility to cardiovascular disease. That is correct. And we know that you have huge changes in cardiac function that's not pathological, but is age-dependent in humans. So once you reach the ripe old age of 35, you're already seeing changes in various features of cardiovascular function. And yet, at ages way beyond the age of sexual maturity, for example, we see no change whatsoever in any variable of heart function. And that to me is really quite remarkable. And it's not the only physiological system that doesn't seem to show changes. Everything we've looked at seems to defy the vagaries of aging and maintain really good health. Well, if we think about this, you know, the general pathologies that limit human lifespan and uh, health span. You know, the big ones are things, obviously, cardiovascular disease, as you had mentioned, but um, there's also cancer, for instance. What, if anything, is unusual about the naked mole rat's susceptibility to cancer? Well, they seem to be resistant to just about everything. In my colony, over 7,500 necropsies We've only had five incidences of cancer, which is incredibly low when you compare that with other species of rodents where most animals, most mice, when they reach two years of age, have some kind of cancerous lesion. Might not be killing them, but they've already started showing that. 
We've tried to experimentally induce cancer in these animals using a very common pathway of DMBA and TPA, which is skin painting the skin of naked mole rats and mice with toxins, anthracyclines that cause cancer in mice. And even though we extended the time to twice as long as what we did in mice, we never saw a single lesion. When we tried to publish that, we were told, well, maybe they just don't get it into their skin. So, you know, it doesn't mean anything. They just are resistant to this because their skin is impervious to this toxin. So we repeated that study using UV radiation. We figured that morats have evolved to live in the dark for at least 32 million years. And so they should not have really evolved protective mechanisms against UV. If anything, they should be very susceptible to UV radiation. And so we treated them with UV twice weekly for six months. And we noticed even after one week, although their skin showed some early signs of sunburn, as we would know it, they never got anywhere near the kind of change in skin quality that you see in mice. We never saw edema. We never saw the skin going red. They certainly peeled, but that was the only thing that happened in response to UV. They showed a very attenuated acute phase response, which meant they didn't have the typical inflammatory response that humans and mice have to UV radiation. And we couldn't induce cancer through chemical means or through UV radiation means. And so we think that the mechanisms that protect them against aging might be the same mechanisms that protect them against cancer as well. That's a very interesting question. But before we get to that, is there anything known covering these sort of um, big topics of human pathology, age-related pathology, is there anything known about their nervous systems that would suggest that they might be resistant to neurodegeneration? Yes. So we've dabbled a little bit in typical Alzheimer's features and pathologies, and we got some very weird results here. We haven't published this yet completely, but I think that it's an interesting phenomenon. We looked at beta amyloid and tau protein, the two main or two putative culprits, I should say, of Alzheimer's disease that are known to form plaques and tangles and cause a lot of neurodegenerative damage. Much to our surprise, we had hypothesized that naked morets would have very low levels of beta amyloid and that this would increase with age like you see in mice, but not to the same extent. But quite the contrary, we found they had very high levels of beta amyloid, and this was maintained at that very high level, three times the level of a triple transgenic Alzheimer's model mouse that's designed to overexpress beta amyloid. But they maintained these very high levels throughout their long lives. And the same thing was true of tau protein. They had high levels of tau, but it seemed to be a heavier molecular weight tau than what you see in humans and in mice. And that led us to think, what's going on? Why do they have such high levels of beta amyloid? If beta amyloid is causally linked to Alzheimer's, could it be that maybe it's protective? And maybe the reason you see high levels of beta amyloid in plaques and tangles is because it's finally overwhelmed by whatever else is causing Alzheimer's. So the more rats sort of are, again, challenging the dogmas there with Alzheimer's research in many ways. In the Alzheimer's field, obviously, 
beta amyloid has been studied to a great extent, there remains this notion or question of what is the exact pathologic mechanism of action, if you will, of amyloid. Is it really a highly toxic species or could it in fact be protective in the sense that when the amyloid deposits, it uh, sequesters free, more toxic, lower molecular weight species and actually becomes a sink for these toxic elements. And so it's not unthinkable that having high, persistently high levels of amyloid might be protective in that regard. That has been discussed in the fields. Absolutely. And I think that's why you see the vaccinations to protect against beta amyloid have failed so dismally in that maybe it is protective. So the field is changing, I think, looking at other mechanisms, as you say. Having visited these three very common human pathologies that limit lifespan and health span, cancer, cardiovascular disease, and neurodegeneration, it seems your observations and those of others indicate that the naked mole rat is resistant to these big three. Now, when you think about it, everything is a system. So these three disparate or supposedly disparate pathologies could be tied together through central mechanisms. One of the things that's been discussed over the years in aging biology is that there are central mechanisms or central pathways that can control the formation or the appearance of these seemingly disparate pathologies like cancer and cardiovascular disease, for instance. So if the naked mole rat has this kind of general resistance to age-related disease, it suggests that there may be a central mechanism at play. And I was wondering if you could comment on that. Yes, that's been a key focus here is to try and get to the mechanisms that might be protecting these animals that have generalized protection. In other words, some kind of intrinsic blueprint that's present in all cells within the animal that would stave off the myriad of adverse effects of aging. There's several potential pathways, and it's really hard to try and figure out if there's just one or if there are multiple mechanisms that are working synergistically. So a key cytoprotective pathway is the NRF2 pathway. It's known as the master regulator of cytoprotection, regulating more than 600 different gene expression. And NRF2 is maintained at very high levels in naked mole rats in all tissues that we've looked at. And it certainly might be playing a role in providing protection in terms of controlling the amount of heat shock proteins, molecular chaperones that are made, antioxidants, detoxicants, and even the removal of damaged material from the cell. So that's the central pathway that we've been focusing a lot on, but I don't think it's the only one. I think we see that the whole mTOR signaling pathway in naked morets is markedly attenuated, which ties in with a lot of the work that's been done by Brian Kennedy and Matt Kabeline and others who've shown that protein synthesis and longer-lived model organisms that have been genetically manipulated is much lower and might be playing an important role there too. For our listeners who may not be familiar with some of these technical terms, NRF2 is a, a transcription factor. It turns on a suite of genes that are expressed that have, in this case, 
concerted functions for cellular maintenance and stress response, coping with stress. So the notion is, is that if you have a high level of NRF2 that you've you've upregulated multiple systems that allow cells to maintain themselves in optimal health, as well as deal with stressors that come along the way. Do you think that's a fair description of how NRF2 works? I think you described it very fluently and very well. As a master regulator, it's regulating all aspects of cytoprotection and is participating in the stress-resistance phenotype that you commonly see in naked mole rats. Are there any drugs that target the NRF2 pathway? Is there a lot of effort going into thinking about manipulating that pathway in humans? There are a couple of drugs that are mainly nutraceuticals rather than drugs that are on the market. We know that broccoli and the cruciferous vegetables all upregulate NRF2 naturally. There's a drug that's been developed as a supplement that seems to extend lifespan of mice quite considerably. It's called ProTandem if you want to give it a bit of a shout out there. Interesting. The intervention testing program has shown that NRF2 supplementation does extend lifespan. Right. So the cruciferous plants are rich in these kind of phenolic compounds that I suppose in high doses are toxic, but maybe in the doses that they appear in our foodstuffs are just kind of stimulating these pathways a little bit. Is that how you think of it? Yeah. And there are also a couple of drugs, Bulhazia medications that seem to stimulate this pathway as well. So I think there are people working on various drugs to stimulate NRF2 activity in the body. Okay. So our mother's telling us to eat our broccoli was good advice, huh? Absolutely. And your Brussels sprouts. <laughs> so in terms of thinking about model systems, the common model systems that are used quite widely in biological research in general, but also in longevity research are the Saccharomyces cerevisiae, the common brewer's yeast, Cenorhabditis elegans, the nematode worm, Drosophila, the fruit fly, and of course, the mouse. But it seems that we need to maybe get beyond these common laboratory uh, model systems and think about more, be more forward thinking about what model systems we might want to bring to bear on this question of longevity. And in previous episodes of Translated Aging, uh, you know, we have talked to people about dogs and also hibernating animals. And now we're talking about the naked mole rats. So do you feel as though, despite the obvious utility of these more standard organisms for learning about molecular processes of aging, that they may have been somewhat limited and that it's time to really broaden our perspective on what animals we go to look at to get a deeper understanding about aging? I think the traditional model organisms have played a very important role in understanding aging because while evolutionary distant, all of these models share an important feature and that is as they get older, their health declines and their probability of dying increases, giving rise to their generally short lifespans. And their short lifespans have also permitted rapid examination of the mechanisms that lead to those functional declines, helping facilitate discovery of compensatory interventions with the hope that some of that will lead to delaying or abrogating human lifespan. 
But in many ways, they've constrained the field because they're all very short-lived and have very poor defenses against aging. And none of them possess the ability that we humans wish to attain, and that is sustained good health out to exceptionally old ages. As humans, we're already extremely long-lived for our body size, far exceeding the lifespans of primates and much larger organisms. And so we already seemingly surpass the lifespans that standard model organisms can achieve in terms of the resistance to the inevitable age-related decline. So all the interventions that have been done so far in the standard models have allowed them to catch up, so to speak, with humans, but they haven't really provided any additional advantage. So that's where I think other models come in. Other models have much longer lifespans than predicted on the basis of their body size. They're not as short-lived. And other models have already found mechanisms through nature to resist the diseases that we've been discussing earlier. You know, other long-lived organisms are things like, obviously, tortoises, whales, elephants. Obviously, the last two are difficult to work with in a laboratory. And I suppose tortoises are limited in that they're very evolutionarily distant from humans. So the rodent is actually quite close to the human. I think you make a great point about the notion that studying aging in a long-lived system makes it more pertinent to humans because we are we are long-lived with regards to our sort of related species. So that's an interesting thought. On the topic of mice, there have been a number of experiments done where investigators genetically engineer mice by adding or removing genes that cause them to become long-lived by manipulating, say, hormonal pathways and whatnot. So you can actually create mice that age slowly. So one might think that the naked mole rat is just a slow-aging mouse So we do have these more slowly aging mice due to genetic manipulation. What are the advantages of looking at this slow aging process in a natural context versus some of these more engineered contexts? I think you're referring to the dwarf mouse, which was the seminal work of Andre Barkey. And he's shown that the dwarf mice, which lack growth hormone, in fact, they lack most of the pituitary hormones, can extend their lifespan to about four and a half years, which is remarkable seeing that most only make it to about three years. But having said that, based on their body size, mice should be living six or seven years. And so they haven't really even brought the maximum lifespan with these genetic manipulations to where they should be on the basis of body size alone. There's a Methuselah Prize that I'm sure you know for the first person. I think it's a million dollars for the first person who can make a mouse live five years, which still is shorter than that predicted allometrically. So I think, yes, we've learned a lot from mice and we've learned how we can manipulate aging or health span to some extent, but nowhere near the extent that you could by looking at species that have already over a multi-million year evolutionary process, modified their biology and have features that enable them to live 10 times longer than a mouse. And that's where I think the naked Moret's an important model. You've had 
a large colony that you've been working with for decades, and I'm sure you've had a number of animals die of old age. When naked mole rats finally do give up the ghosts, as it were, what are they actually dying of? And how does that compare to, say, mice, uh, laboratory mice? Most organisms, when they die, or most mice, when they die, die ultimately from their heart stopping and their kidneys not functioning, usually in response to cancers and various other ailments that have really put a load on these systems. In the case of mole rats, as I mentioned earlier, we've seen very little cancer. We've seen even fewer instances of cardiac ailments. Most of the time when our animals die, the veterinarian pathologists tell us they died of periodontal disease, ulcers in their mouth and gums in particular, which I think really represents the fact that they've given up and they've stopped eating and the bacteria in their mouth have just gone crazy. There's no saliva to flush them away and they're causing all these ulcers, which creates a sort of vicious cycle of the animals being unable to eat because it hurts. I don't think that's what's really killing them. I think we see quite a few signs of kidney disease in these animals, and maybe their kidneys are malfunctioning in the final stages of life. But death is stochastic. It can happen as an animal of a year of age, and it can happen in an animal of 30 years of age. There's no real difference in cause of death between those two groups. But the real answer is we don't really know what it is that kills them. We just know what doesn't kill them are the common diseases that kill mice and humans. People in the field of geroscience have talked about this concept called the hallmarks of aging. And they've been enumerated by a number of investigators as encompassing concepts like genome maintenance, telomere shortening, metabolic dysregulation, oxidative stress, protein homeostasis, tissue regeneration, efficacy of stem cells to maintain and repair organ systems. So if you look across those broad categories of hallmarks of aging, are there any that stick out to you as being particularly pertinent to the naked mole rat? Or do they seem to have some sort of advantage across these different biological areas? So we haven't really looked at all of them. For example, we haven't looked at stem cell exhaustion, although I think it is important. But all the ones that we have looked at, genomic stability, telomere maintenance, oxidative stress, proteostasis, show signs of well-maintained pathways. All the molecular mechanisms that are involved in that seem to be sustained throughout their long lives. What's really interesting, though, is the whole role of inflammaging in these animals. Every time we've tried to induce some kind of stress, we see a very abrogated or attenuated inflammatory response. They don't seem to activate their inflammatory pathways to the same extent as other animals. And given the role of inflammaging and aging, Maybe this is the systemic pathway that's being dampened to maintain good health for long periods of time. It has been suggested that dysregulation of the immune system is a certainly a general feature of aging, but perhaps even one of the most potent and fundamental mechanisms through which people experience increased pathology and decreased health span. 
So what is known about the immune system of the naked mole rat? And are there any clues as to why these animals may be less susceptible to this inflammaging process? That's a good question. In fact, I think that's the million dollar question that I'd love to get all the answers to. It's something we've been working on quite a lot while I've been here. We've published a paper a couple of years ago looking at single cell analysis of the immune system of the naked mole rats. And we found, unlike mice, which have predominantly lymphoid cells, T cells and B cells, naked mole rats tend to rely much more on the innate immune system on the myeloid cells. In fact, the ratio of myeloid cells to lymphoid cells is more like humans and very distant from their close cousin, so-called mouse. So they seem to rely on a much more non-selective, rapid responding, innate response. One of the striking things we found, which I'm still trying to wrap my head around, is that naked morats lack natural killer cells. These cells, as I'm sure you know, are very important in fighting viruses. And maybe naked morats are particularly susceptible to viruses, but we've just kept them in a nice pathogen-free environment all these years. So maybe that's their Achilles heel. But these same natural killer cells are also meant to be very important in cancer immune surveillance. And morats lack this important cell type. So we don't know what cell type has taken over the function of natural killer cells. We think it's the cytotoxic T cell. And we've got an ongoing study at the moment looking at T cell presence, maturation, and function in the naked morats. But it's still early days. We haven't finished the analysis of that. So at some stage, maybe that's the secret to their longevity and resistance to inflammaging. So for our listeners we're not so familiar with immunology, we tend to divide the immune system into something called the innate and adaptive immune system, which Shelley just referred to. The innate immune system is more nonspecific. It's not the immune system that's associated with a vaccine response, for instance. They're these sort of persistent cells that protect us from various forms of bacterial and viral infections. And then there's the adaptive immune system, which are T cells and B cells that produce antibodies and are responsible for vaccine response. It's generally been thought that the innate immune system, the non-adaptive immune system, is actually more primitive, arose earlier in evolution than the adaptive B and T cell system. So given that thought, would you say that the naked mole rat may have a kind of a more primitive or ancestral immune system as compared to, say, a mouse? Well, you know, I hate the use of the word primitive because it certainly is well adapted to its environment. And to me, primitive implies inferior. The fact that their immune system in terms of cellular makeup is more similar to humans makes me negate that kind of comment. As I mentioned, both humans and mole rats have about 40% of their immune cells being these slow-responding adaptive immune cells with their specific antigens and huge diversity for dealing with new infections and the likes thereof. I think the fact that they rely more heavily on the innate immune system means they get rid of whatever infections coming along before it has a chance to proliferate and 
they don't really have that many diseases that they would naturally encounter in their burrow, but they're able to deal with anything in a non-specific way. You know, I, I wouldn't use the word primitive to describe their immune system, just different. Yeah, I guess the word ancestral is maybe better, <laughs> but um, point taken. There's been a lot of recent interest in looking at fertility as a feature of aging. I'd like to discuss that a little bit with you, but we have to give a little background there because in terms of fertility and reproduction, the naked mole rat is unusual. This sort of circles back to the beginning of the story, which is this eusociality. Could you describe briefly the unusual reproductive strategies of naked mole rats and then we can discuss the impact of aging on their fertility. So naked mole rats are one of two known eusocial mammals, the other being a close relative of the naked mole rat, the Demoraland mole rat. In both cases, the animals live in colonies as a family group with a single breeding female that we commonly refer to as the queen and workers and other animals making up the colony, their role is primarily to maintain the burrow system, look after the young, forage and bring food to the colony. Unlike bees, any animal in the colony is capable of breeding as long as it's isolated from the presence of the dominant breeding female. She suppresses reproduction in other animals in her colonies, both male and female, by being a bully. Should she die, the females in the colony will fight to death to become the next breeding female, undergo a substantial growth surge, almost similar to what happens in humans as we go through puberty. And this growth surge enables her to have larger and larger litters. So when she's a young queen, she usually has between one and eight offspring in a litter. And then with time, that average increases to about 12. And now very old breeding females can have as many as 30 pups in a litter. So any female in the colony can breed, but most of them are stuck in the suspended prepubescent state. When a female becomes the dominant breeding female, she continues to breed throughout her life. There's no sign of menopause. My best female gave birth to 1,100 offspring that I personally counted in her 11-year reign as queen. And that's remarkable in terms of fecundity for ill fitness for any species that's out there. What's really intriguing is that the breeding female doesn't go through a menopause and despite having this high cost of reproduction, doesn't have a shorter lifespan than any of the other animals in the colony. Quite the contrary, studies looking at demographic analysis and of survival and Gompertian mortality rates showed that the breeding females were the longest lived animals in the colony. So trying to understand the whole premise of the disposable soma theory of aging, which basically posits you either put your energy into maintaining your own body or into reproduction, the breeding female seems to have her cake and eat it. She more than doubles her mass during pregnancy. She has an incredibly high metabolic rate during both pregnancy and lactation, and yet she's able to maintain her own soma and maintain her high reproductive output throughout her long life. We recently had 
Dr. Jennifer Garrison from the Buck Institute is a guest. She has started this Center for Reproductive Longevity and uh, Equality at the Buck Institute. And she's very interested in ovarian biology and pointed out to me, surprisingly, that humans are somewhat unique amongst the vertebrates or the mammals in that they go through menopause. And there's a lot of interest in how menopause or reproductive senescence in females impacts health and longevity and health span and that sort of thing. Do you think there's anything about this reproductive strategy of the naked mole rat that could teach us something about human fertility in terms of longevity or health span? Yeah, the whole concept of menopause and fertility, we know that in most species, fertility declines as you get older. It's true of mice and it's true of humans. And yet more rats are showing the exact opposite pattern where the number of offspring produced in a litter increases with increasing age. I'm intrigued to know what's going on with their primary follicles. We've always had the concept that all eggs are made in utero or shortly after birth, and then they only mature and go through their final stages of meiosis in later life. And yet we have an animal that may or may not become a breeder and is yet able to produce high quality eggs well into old age. So one of the questions I'm very intrigued with trying to follow up on with regard to reproductive longevity is whether the stem cells or the follicles are still being made in adult mole rats or whether they, like mice and humans, have their set number at birth and these eggs are just sitting there getting damaged and losing quality as the organism gets older. So I think there's some very interesting questions with regard to fertility that we don't really know the answer yet to, especially in the naked mole Yeah, maybe that they have some unusual ovarian biology. I think a number of years ago, it was published in the journal Nature, this shocking finding that adult female, I think mice are actually still producing new eggs, I think even into adulthood. And that was running counter to conventional wisdom. So it's very interesting to propose the notion that there could be postnatal oogenesis going on in this animal. Is that what you were suggesting or did I get that wrong? No, that's my hypothesis. I haven't tested it yet, but that's what my thought process is. No, it's very interesting. It's really quite fascinating that the features of this animal almost make it kind of a super organism when it comes to the notion of mammalian aging and health and disease, you have an animal that has an unusual long lifespan and an unusually long health span. It seems to defy all the limitations that we tend to think of as humans in terms of what we expect as our health outcomes as we age, i.e. cancer, neurodegeneration, cardiovascular disease, etc., and also loss of fertility. And yet this remarkable creature seems to defy all these, or has maybe uncoupled these things from the aging process. So it is really extraordinary to have all these features in one animal that's experimentally tractable. So in terms of evolutionary pressure, what do you think are the kind of the selection pressures that allow this kind of, quote, super animal to emerge and be successful and sustained as a species? Are there any trade-offs 
Naked Morats live in a very harsh environment. They've been pushed underground by the more successful, faster-moving species that live above ground and are found in very deep burrows in this very arid environment in Northeast Africa. In this environment, they commonly encounter very low levels of oxygen and very high levels of carbon dioxide. And over the course of evolution, have evolved mechanisms to be able to not only survive under those conditions, but thrive. We know that the naked morat can survive 18 minutes in an oxygen-free environment without damaging its brain in any way, whereas humans and mice after three minutes are brain dead. So they've had to develop these mechanisms to survive under these very harsh conditions. And I think many of the effects that we see that pertain to their extreme longevity are byproducts of having to cope with such a harsh and hostile environment. The plus side of their environment, obviously, is that they are protected from predation living beneath ground. They're also protected against climatic extremes and airborne pathogens. So as a compromise for this trade-off of their hostile habitat, they've been able to reduce extrinsic mortality and develop longevity assurance kinds of mechanisms. So I think the biology of the naked morat sort of provides a proof of concept that it contains a blueprint for how to stave off many of the adverse effects of aging. The real problems with trying to figure out what that blueprint is are that we currently lack the technological tools for working with such an exotic species. Many of the molecular tools, for example, in Mice don't work in naked mole rats. In fact, we find far better success using human antibodies than mouse antibodies for our various pathways that we're trying to examine. Looking to the future, what do you think are the most important next steps for characterizing this animal? As I hinted a second ago, I think we really lack the good tools for really getting at mechanism that might be involved in their extreme longevity. To me, the next steps are trying to successfully make transgenic naked mole rats and being able to manipulate certain genes both in them and giving their unique genetic makeup to mice to see if we can extend their longevity or at least their health span in a significant kind of way. So I think the next steps really have to be exploiting the advances in CRISPR technology and in other genetic manipulations to try and get a true mechanism involved in their exceptional function. Okay, so here's a kind of a blue sky question. If money were no object and you had your own Naked Mole Rat Institute, what would be the key elements of such an enterprise and where would you take all of that? I really do think we've got to try and interrogate their genome a little bit more thoroughly to look for novel genes rather than use the mouse and human gene atlases to understand what's there. I think once we've got a good handle on what's different about their genome and their epigenome and epitranscriptome, we'll be able to more successfully understand their aging phenotype. I really do believe that CRISPR 
and the advances there will help us advance the field quite dramatically in the next few years. And that's my hope if we could, is to employ both CRISPR and other molecular techniques to really get a handle on what's different in these species. Thank you very much, Dr. Buffenstein, for joining us and being so generous with your time and your thoughts about this fascinating creature that is teaching us a great deal about human longevity. That's been fun. It's been a real pleasure to be with you. I look forward to hearing the next episode. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at bioagepodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.